today we continue our series on the letters to the churches in Revelation. And today our focus is on the Church of Philadelphia. So I invite you now to sing with us as we begin this part of our worship today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. of the Church of Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my words and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to test those who live upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. pleased today to have with us uh, a special guest, someone that I think you know very well, who is uh, just here for fun today. But uh, he doesn't ever get to go anywhere just for fun. He always has to work a little bit. Pastor Derek Morris is with us today. And I want to invite him to come up here for just a minute and say a few words. Yes. Welcome back, Pastor Derek. We're glad you're here. And uh, morning, please everyone. share some words with us. Are we, I think we're good. Go ahead there. Good morning, everyone. You know, I was sitting here, Pastor Jeff, and just, uh, just missing being part of the Forest Lake Church family. But uh, I just want to share with you um, 
when I left here six years ago uh, to go to ministerial, we continued the Hope Sabbath School, which started here about nine years ago. And then on April 11 of this year, they asked me if I would become the president of Hope Channel. So that's been a change. But I'm excited today, as I'm sitting here in church, Pastor Jeff, to know, I just talked to Pastor Patty this week, and she talked about this series as something that will be broadcast on Hope Channel. Mm. So I was just walking through Hope Channel a few weeks ago, and Pastor Jeff was preaching on Hope Channel India. <laughs> and I looked and I said, that's Forest Lake Church. <laughs> so I just want to thank you for your commitment mm. to not only minister in an amazing way to this community, Pastor Jeff, but to minister to to the world and uh, God is blessing and and you'll be in our prayers. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, remember to pray uh, for Pastor Derek and his work he's doing with Hope TV and and really the difference he's made and uh, and and brought what takes place here and the amazing things that happen in this place uh, all around the world during the days when you were here and even after that. So we thank you for that that faithfulness to the Lord. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that uh, you would help us to be those people who have ears, that today we might hear what the Spirit says to us. Help us today to understand what this means and find hope for living in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like no one cared about you, or that no one even noticed you, or that your life really meant nothing at all? Or worse, is that what other people are saying to you? Have you ever been bypassed and belittled and betrayed? How about despised and defamed and derided and destroyed? Ever been opposed or oppressed, mocked or maligned, cheated or chastised, ridiculed or rejected? Have you ever had a door slammed in your face? Welcome to Philadelphia. And by that I don't mean Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Though if you show up there as a Cowboys fan or a Redskins fan, you might experience all of those things that I just listed. I kid about this, but, but if you have ever been the downtrodden one, you know it really isn't funny at all. And it is at such times that who we really are, our true identity, is tested and tried and all too often stolen away from us and replaced by a lie that says, you fool. You moron. You idiot. And in those times, have you ever wanted to cry out, Lord, don't you see this? Don't you see what they are doing? Are you going to let them shut me out? Are you ever going to do anything about this? 172 years ago, short one day, 
there was a group that found out all and more they ever wanted to know about the Philadelphia experience. I mentioned last Sabbath that we were going to get out of order with the churches. We're looking at the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, and our original schedule had us considering the church at Philadelphia this Sabbath, and we were going to have done Sardis last week, but then you'll remember a little thing called Hurricane Matthew came along and kind of disrupted our schedule a little bit. So we didn't do Sardis last week. We talked about Thyatira last week. But as I thought about it, I was just determined we have to do Philadelphia today. Why was I so determined that we wrestle with it today? Well, because it's Sabbath, October 22, of course. And if that doesn't explain it well enough for you, maybe this will. 172 years ago today, the people who put the Adventist in Seventh-day Adventist experienced what would come to be known as the Great Disappointment. The Millerites, led by William Miller initially, but many others later, including an older gentleman by the name of Joseph Bates and a young man by the name of James White and a young believer of the message whose name was Ellen Harmon, the Millerites believed that they had determined from the study of Scripture, and particularly from Daniel chapter 8, that Jesus was going to return on October 22, 1844. We don't have time to go into details about how they finally settled on this date. We did do that a year ago. You'll remember in our Daniel series, The End is Certain, we talked about that. But I do want to focus for a moment on their experience, an experience that for a season was the sweetest they had ever known, but one that turned sour and turned bitter for them. Millerism at first was, was a powerful revival. Miller began to teach that Jesus is coming soon, and it was a number of years off when he first started to talk about this, and, and so pastors would invite him in, and he would talk, and it, it had this revival effect on the churches, and many churches were coming to life. But as the date got closer, there started to be tension within the churches, and many churches were split right down the middle aisle. You can imagine the stress when half the church is sure that Jesus is coming again in just a couple of years, and the other half really wants to get a building project underway. And this half says, no, Jesus will be here. And they say, what is wrong with you crazy people? Obviously, this situation could not be sustained. And in time, the Millerites, who generally were in the minority in their churches, got thrown out of those churches that they'd grown up in, that they'd supported, that they'd loved, where they'd served. And you can imagine, if you got thrown out of the church that you'd been a part of all your life, that's pretty painful, isn't it? And for a time, Millerism existed in parallel with other churches, though as you can probably imagine, as the time grew shorter and shorter and the year 1844 approached, tensions started to grow. And why wouldn't they? I mean, if Jesus was about to come again, all the deniers were in danger. On the other hand, if he wasn't about to come again, wouldn't that mean that the Millerites were just another group of apocalyptic wackos who are about to get the reality check they deserve? Tension. 
It, isn't, it is always so difficult to be gracious when someone else is shown to be wrong, isn't it? And isn't that especially true when the wrongness leads to disunion and breakdown? And if the wrong suffer for their wrong, well, isn't that just what we call natural consequences? And if we pile on and kick them a couple times while they're down, surely that could be excused as righteous indignation, right? They were wrong. Personally, I hate being wrong. Or at least I think I would hate it if it ever happened. <laughs> How many of you can relate? I hate being wrong, but sometimes I think maybe something I hate even more is when I'm not wrong and someone else is wrong and they don't think they're wrong, but I know they're wrong. And it doesn't seem to matter how clearly I point out they're wrong. They keep on being wrong in the fullness of their vainglorious wrongness. But what I actually hate the most of all is when I'm sure they are wrong and they don't listen to me and then one day I find out I actually was wrong. And sometimes that happens even when I'm not wrong on the facts but wrong in the way I dealt with my brothers and sisters over facts that really weren't worth the ugliness that I brought to the fight. Has Jesus ever told you he loved someone you hated and then made you come to them and humbly apologize for making their life a living Philadelphia? Have you ever felt shut out? Have you ever been the one who shut someone out? Most of the Millerites, after the great disappointment of October 22, 1844, gave up on the notion that the interpretation of Daniel 8 contained any truth at all, and they decided they had been fully wrong, and they slunk back to their churches and just tried to forget the whole thing. There was another group that hung on, believing they had primarily made a math error. And that Jesus truly would be arriving any minute. Some of this group actually still survives today, but only in very small numbers in a few isolated locations. But then there was one more group. A group that believed this experience had been too real for God not to have been in it. And I have to wonder, would we call people like that crazy today? This group suffered a great deal of disdain and abuse for their views, but they found courage in the Scripture, and particularly they found hope in this message written to the church in Philadelphia. And this is why we absolutely had to, in honor of our spiritual parents, consider this message today. Now, I might also mention to you, and you might look for it, someone texted me about this a minute ago, that uh, there is actually just come out a, a very neat production, you probably know about this, Pastor Derek, um, 
that uh, is called Tell It to the World. That is the story of our spiritual parents that went through that disappointment and then what grew out of that after that. And uh, you can find it, uh, artv.adventistreview.org. Just, you could find it if you went to adventistreview.org. And you want to watch that. I understand it's very well done. I haven't seen it yet. But, but this is the story. They had courage. I wonder if we have the same courage today. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. There actually isn't much information about ancient Philadelphia. There's a new modern city that's even not all that big that's built on top of it. So there really aren't a lot of ruins left. So I don't have really any pictures for you today. And in fact, in the time of John's writing of this letter, Philadelphia was by comparison a fairly young city. It was only founded in the year 189 B.C. by King Eumenes II of Pergamum and he had established it as an outpost of Greek culture. King Eumenes named the city in honor of his love for his brother, Attalus II, who would succeed him to the throne upon his death. Now, why did it have that name? Because it was because of his love for his brother? Well, you've heard of the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania being called the city of brotherly love. Uh, that's obviously not because of how it is, right? If you've ever been there. So where does it get that name? Well, it's actually from Philadelphia itself. That's a compound word. The first part, phileo, meaning love, and adelphos, meaning brother. So that's why it's the city of brotherly love. In the year 133 B.C., at the time of the death of Attalus III, Philometer, who died without an heir, the kingdom of Pergamum was then bequeathed to Rome which then combined it with the district of Ionia to create the province of Asia. We've talked about the province of Asia. That's where the seven churches are. This ancient city of Philadelphia was severely damaged by an earthquake in the year A.D. 17 and then received a lot of assistance from Rome in order to rebuild. And not surprisingly, as a result of this, there seems to have been a lot of influence of Rome, of imperial Rome, in the city of Philadelphia. And so kind of like Smyrna, it seems as though Philadelphia was a place where the imperial cult was strong. That was the emperor worship people. And this fact, along with a couple others, creates for us a link between the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia in that they seem to have faced some rather serious issues, including persecutions in one form or another. Yet I think there is a significant difference revealed here between the trials of Smyrna versus the trials of Philadelphia, a point that I believe is clearly indicated in how Jesus expresses himself to the church. Recall, with the church at Smyrna, Jesus was described as this. Revelation 2, verse 8. 
These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So this is how Jesus represents himself to Smyrna. It's a description that suggests that the nature of the persecution that was taking place in Smyrna was really a life or death scenario, and the Jesus they desperately needed to see and believe in was the Jesus who could bring you back from the dead. But the Jesus of Philadelphia takes a different form. Revelation 3, verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, it certainly is a picture of a Jesus that would be a comfort to us in duress. But unlike with Smyrna, who needed the picture of Jesus who raises the dead, it seems to me the believers in Philadelphia need to know that there is a Jesus that will one day unlock all those doors that have been slammed in their faces and finally reveal the truth. That in fact, those believers in Philadelphia who have been maligned and abused by all those around them have in fact been the faithful ones that Jesus loved. Have you ever been mocked in your weakness? Have you ever been mocked for your faith? Verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Have you ever reached the point where you were pretty sure for you it was over? You were done. You were finished. You were worn out. All the doors had been shut, and there was no hope. Now, let me add something here. Did you end up at that point because of your foolishness or because of your faithfulness? This is an important point here as we consider this church in Philadelphia. Don't misapply this message. This is not a general message to anyone who finds themselves in a tight spot, though it's true Jesus will help you out of a tight spot even if you've gotten yourself there by your foolishness. But that's not what this message is. The message to the church in Philadelphia is specifically a message to those who are suffering daily, not a persecution to death, but instead a living persecution at the hands of those who find the faith of the Philadelphians to be ridiculous. Now, this is not the inevitable suffering that comes to those who refuse to live according to the teachings of the ten to take us back a few falls. You remember when we talked about the Ten Commandments and, and how we never get away with breaking them. It's not that God is mean and judges us. It's just that these things are reality and you break them, you pay every time. We're not talking so much about that as in there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God and it's right and proper to take that day of rest. Rather, what we're talking about is those who suffer because they take that day of rest as God has given us. That's who we're talking about. 
There is a powerful word in the message to Philadelphia for everyone who has pondered along with the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it, Lord, that we keep trying to do what you're telling us and we keep barely making it, yet all around us are those who mock your word, flaunt your laws, and laugh at your faithful people, yet they keep living in ease while we keep struggling over here? Why is that? And you know, it's one thing to be mocked by the world. Have you ever been abused by those who claim to be Christian, but are anything but? In the message to Philadelphia, Jesus has a powerful answer. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This is the promise of Jesus. Justice will come. Justice will come. And all that and on that day everyone will know who God's righteous and faithful people are. And those who mock today will repent. But what becomes of the faithful? Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Do you notice that phrase there, to endure patiently? You know where I'm going with this? This is a word we've talked about a few times, right? Hupomone. Here is the patience of the saints. We've heard this word used in the description of the church in Ephesus. It's been used in Thyatira. Here it is again in Philadelphia. The description of those who patiently endure and wait for the Lord. Do you kind of get the idea by the way this word keeps coming up that patiently enduring is a big part of the faith? There is a day of deliverance coming to those who suffer now, but when will it come? Well, obviously that's going to be when Jesus comes and makes everything right, but when will that be? Verse 11. I am coming soon. So what do we do with those words? What does that mean? Well, it's clear enough to us, whenever we read those words in the Bible, I am coming soon, we take it to mean what? Jesus is coming soon. Are we right to do that?
Certainly these words were powerful words of comfort to the Millerite band that would become the Seventh-day Adventists. What these words said to them when they read this message to Philadelphia as they were being persecuted by former Millerites and by other Christians and by those who said, you guys are crazy, let it go. But they hung on believing What these words said to them is there is no need for us to give up our hope. We must patiently endure because the promise of Jesus is soon and he is coming soon. Now I think in this is a hint to us on how we need to deal with these words. But what do you suppose those words meant to the believers in Philadelphia in that day? This is not an easy question to answer. It is far easier to blow by such ponderings and just apply these words to our time with an intentionally narrow single-mindedness that in its intensity drowns out any danger of contemplation or reflection on what the Bible is saying. But that's not the kind of Bible students we want to be here, is it? We cannot content ourselves with the convenient answers that ignore the challenges. We dishonor the living word and we carelessly kill it and then mount it on the wall being certain that it is never allowed to speak a truth both in its time of writing and in our day. We don't want to do that. Yet having said that, I'm not sure I can tell you what these words meant to the believers in Philadelphia in their day. I assume they took these words to mean Jesus was coming soon, as in within their generation. And I presume they were pretty sure about their belief, kind of like we're pretty sure about ours. Now, in fairness to us, there are reasons we believe the coming of Jesus is soon that go far beyond a simple statement in the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And it was upon these reasons that a small band of Millerites who became the Seventh-day Adventists found further evidence for their conviction that Jesus was, in fact, coming soon in this letter to the church of Philadelphia. What do you hear in these words? But not just these words, also the words that follow. Revelation 3, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Let me tell you what I hear in these words. I hear Jesus saying, don't give up, keep hanging on. Don't let the doubters and the naysayers and the faithless steal away your true identity. And I think this is a very important message that Jesus is speaking to us today. He is saying, I believe, do not let go of your identity in me. And what identity is that? We are the spiritual descendants of those Millerites who never lost their faith that Jesus is coming again soon. And who through faithful and careful study 
came to understand why once they were disappointed, but why they won't be disappointed again. We are the ones who believe and teach this message. Jesus is coming soon. And it doesn't matter who makes fun of us or how we might be dismissed for believing and teaching this way, this is who we are. And this, in the fullness of the story of salvation in Jesus, is our message. It is a crown we must hold on to in faith until our message, until our hope has become reality. We must hold on to it until Jesus comes again. And if we remain faithful, if we hupomone, if we are victorious in our day, in our charge, what are the results? Verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You want to talk about a, the perfect prescription for those who have been maligned and mocked and mistreated regarding our identity in Christ? I don't know how it gets any better than this. It's like we're signed, sealed, and delivered. You see, Jesus, according to the text, is going to write on us the name of the Father, our new home address in the New Jerusalem, and his name as well. It's kind of like we're a package and Jesus took us and stamped us with the cross and said, to God the Father, address New Jerusalem, return address Jesus Christ. You know who you are, you know where you're going, and you know who sent you. So don't give up now. You're signed, you're sealed, and you are in the process of delivery. Don't let the voices of doubt, the voices of disdain, the voices of destruction cause you to question who you are. You are the redeemed of Christ Jesus, called out in the last days to announce salvation and redemption in Jesus and to proclaim his soon return. Yeah, it's an identity that can get made fun of. But can you think of an identity more important than this? So make no mistake. Life in Philadelphia, it can be hard. But don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give in to the scoffers. Don't let anyone take your crown. 
Instead, oh brother, oh sister, even if your faith has made Philadelphia your home, oh brother, oh sister, be faithful. Soon, Jesus will come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have made our identity sure. You have established us as a people to proclaim the everlasting gospel and the day of judgment of our God. You have sent us out to say, this Jesus who has saved us is coming again. Lord, give us courage to be faithful like the believers in Philadelphia and like our spiritual parents before us, that we will be faithful to our call until the day you make the message reality. In Jesus' name, amen.